Hello, Cachimbonas. I'm really excited today to have Senya of Fuerte, which is the podcast and larger arts and advocacy network that I am a part of, that Radio Cachimbona is a part of. And I'm having Senya on today to talk about recent voting anti-voting rights legislation that the GOP has passed in Arizona and giving us more context around that. So before we get started, I just wanted to thank you, Senya, for coming onto the podcast and really excited about talking about this with you. Absolutely. Happy to be here. So the first question that I wanted to ask is, what are the anti-voting rights bills that the Arizona GOP has passed and what effect are they likely to have on upcoming elections for disenfranchised groups? So the GOP has pushed forward about 100 or so anti-voting rights bills throughout this legislature. There have been a lot of them who that have died in committee, thankfully. The ones that are of most concern right now are the ones that have been able to get out of their house of origin. So if they start in the house, they made it through all this project the process and gotten over to the Senate um, and are now up for consideration in the Senate, for example. And those bills, they do a variety of things, right? So it's anything from making it harder to get registered to vote, requiring a different kind of ID, disqualifying people from the ballot if they don't use a particular set of ID, or requiring people to show ID when they're dropping off their early ballots instead of just kind of like showing up with your sealed envelope and dropping it and then piecing out to go live your life. Basically, all of these things, what they wind up doing is that they end up putting an excessive burden on the voter. Mm-hmm. And making it more complicated, more difficult, less accessible to be able to cast your ballot at the in, at the polls by mail in any of like the variety of ways that have been like provided by county recorders and various like election administrators throughout the state. Right. So how many of those have left the House of Origin and what are the particular things that those bills are focusing on? So we have about I want to say between 50 and 60 bills right now that are suppressing the vote that have made it out of their house of origin are on on track to possibly be passed and make it to the governor's desk. So just for context here, the GOP is consistently every session trying to find a way to somehow infringe on our voting rights. Like every session, it's like Groundhog Day, right? We're having to deal with this. This year is particularly, particularly bad because they're fueled by the big lie. And they're using kind of this conspiracy theory and this rhetoric, say, claiming like election protection, election safety, whatever, in order to push these bills forward. So about 50 or 60 have made it out of their house of origin, are currently in consideration in the opposite house. The ones that we're particularly focusing on as the Voting Rights Coalition is one that would basically, if you register to vote before a particular date, mm-hmm then you would be considered an unverified voter um, that you're mm. that the that the document that you use to register to vote is insufficient and would kick you off the rolls and require you to re-register. Right. So this yeah. could affect um, this could affect lots of people who are already registered to vote in Arizona. Kick them off. You wouldn't realize that you're, you've been kicked off the voter rolls until possibly it's too late mm-hmm. and disqualify you from participating in the next election. Right. And the big lie that GOP members are using to justify these laws is that the 2020 presidential election was 
was rigged in favor of Biden and Trump actually won. And they claimed that there was a lot of voter fraud in the 2020 election. And so they claim that these efforts are are meant to ameliorate that. Right, exactly. A couple other bills that they've proposed is uh, having a cyber ninja style audit every single time there is an election. That fraud, that like scam audit, fake audit, like ballot review, like it, first and foremost, it didn't find anything, right? Second, it actually violated chain of custody for ballots. It made it so people's ballots were exposed in, situ- in, in situations that would not have happened if we had just followed the existing election procedures that the Secretary of State already has set up. Um, what and is they a want cyber, cyber Ninja audit? I'm sorry? What is a Cyber Ninja audit? Sorry, you used that phrase. Oh, and yeah. I'm, people are probably like, what does that mean? So the Cyber Ninja audit earlier this year, also fueled by the big lie, also claiming that the election was rigged. Believers of the big lie, they launched a fraudulent election review. And oh, they right. contracted, yeah, they contracted a, an organization of in Maricopa a company County. Yeah, yeah, in Maricopa yeah. County. And they attempted this, I think, in Philadelphia or Pennsylvania somewhere too, right? And basically what they did is that they sifted through the ballots and they were looking for something to back up their claim that the election was stolen. It was a very poorly done review. You really can't call it an audit because audits are meticulous. They're, you know, very, they they do everything that they can to protect the election of uh, the integrity of the ballot, making sure that it's all confidential. That but was an audit necessary in the first place, though? No, it wasn't. It absolutely right. wasn't. Yeah. So, I mean, the whole effort was disingenuous from the start. Like, I am writing this week about how Ginny Thomas, Clarence Thomas's wife, is involved with, like, She's on the board of this organization and uh, an arm of the organization wrote up a detailed November next steps document that was like literally telling its members how to go about convincing people that the 2020 election was rigged in Biden's favor. So like the audit efforts were coming from a disingenuous place from the very beginning. And so it's not super surprising to me that it was a messy audit and like wasn't detailed i mean because it's like how could it be like there was nothing to find you know what i mean exactly i mean they were they were looking they were looking for evidence to be able to fabric to support their life and they weren't able to find any because this election was among the most secure and the most secure that we've had in history on top of having like the highest turnout amongst underrepresented groups, underinvested groups. So you have that perfect storm of, you know, people are interested. They wanted their candidate to win. This candidate was going to push whatever messaging he needed to in order to make it seem like, you know, whoever, if he didn't win, it was all fake anyway. So they're really using that momentum in order to write some of these bills to, uh, to undermine the integrity of our elections, to make it harder for people to be able to vote. And how does this compare to what's happening in other parts of the country? Because this is a nationwide effort, right? Like it's not just Arizona that is using the big lie as justification for passing anti-voting rights bills. 
Right. Arizona is particularly heinous, but it isn't an isolated incident. This is a coordinated yeah. attack. And some of the pieces that are happening in other states, it looks like they're setting up the dominoes to fall to try to challenge some federal legislation in the Supreme Court. So it's a multi, it's like a death of many cuts. And what we can do as people who are in Arizona who are paying, paying attention to the state legislature is work to kill the bills at the local level that undermine our elections and that would hurt Arizona voters and our, the integrity and the freedom of vote to vote here. Yeah. Are, are you saying that the Arizona voting restrictions are particularly heinous just because of the bad history that we've had? You know, we had the Bernovich Supreme Court decision recently. And is that what you're referring to? Or what are the aspects that make Arizona kind of a particularly emergency zone for voting rights? Like, why is it so bad here? It's it's so bad because I think we have a higher density of folks um, that believe in the conspiracy theory that are acting on the conspiracy theory to pass some of these bills. And there is a schism within their own party, within the GOP, between folks that are just conservative, you know, which, you know, they're not our friends anyways, but they're but they're a little bit more tied to reality and the folks who are kind of running away with this conspiracy theory. So they're fighting amongst themselves. And we have some folks that can be convinced to come to our side and say, hey, you know what, that's that's too far. That's a step too far. And be pulled into our fight to fight for the integrity of our ballot. But because we have such a large amount of representatives that are buying into the big lie, working from a place of white supremacy, like really kind of beating the, uh, beating the drum, um, since there's so many of them. And I'm thinking, I'm talking like people like Wendy Rogers, I'm talking people like Kelly Townsend, people who have been on a nationwide level proclaimed as people who are like following white supremacy and just flat out racist and looking for ways to make it harder for people, for people like us, people of color to cast our ballot. Right. Yeah, because for a second, I forgot that it was Arizona House reps that did have a large role in planning the January 6th rally, turn insurrection, attempted coup, whatever you want to call it. It was reps Biggs and Gassar that, after the fact, were reported to be very much involved in the planning of that. So it makes sense that there is still that part of the GOP that is running with the big lie is still really prominent here. That makes sense to me. Yeah. Uh, you hit it on the head. And so I, you said that you were going to include any calls to action around this, even apart from monitoring the bills that have left their house of origin. Are there any other ways that people can stay knowledgeable about the situation and what bills are being passed? Absolutely. So we have a large coalition of, or of nonprofit organizations that are monitoring the bills. There is a website called the Democracy Pledge, okay, which is democracypledgeaz.com. The basic overview of, those, of this website and this pledge is that I'm signing on because I believe that no matter where you live, no matter where you come from, mm -hmm. no matter what you look like, you should be able to cast your ballot and do it in a safe, convenient, accessible way. Right. So we're pushing for that message. We That's the vision for what we want our elections to look like here in Arizona and nationwide, mm -hmm. but specifically in Arizona. Yeah. And that page is actually also a, we have a really strong call to action page. 
attached to that pledge. So once you sign on to that pledge, you'll get updates, you'll get more information, but there's also a landing page where everything that we're doing to protect our ballot is aggregated on that page. So think of it as a link tree. Okay. Well, I will, I can add that to the show notes so that people can take a look. And Sydney, I just wanted to thank you for coming onto the podcast and sharing your knowledge about these issues. Awesome. And if people want to get more involved, follow us on social media. Uh, we can be found at Fuerte AZ on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, like you name it, we're there. And we're going to keep fighting for our ballot, fighting for our voting rights until, you know, until we can't no more. Right. Until, until we have the vision that we want, you know? Right. Right. I love that. And so to close out, I wanted to ask a question that I've been asking this season at the end of interviews, which is, what is something that is giving you life or nourishing you at the moment? I think what's nourishing me is one, my dog. Yes. Oh, a little wild life. child. Yeah, she's a little yellow pit bull and so much energy. I can't keep up sometimes. <laughs> and also seeing other folks be creative and use their creativity to pull attention to issues that are really important mm. to people in our community. Yeah. I love that. Okay. Well, Cindy, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Thank you so much for coming and talking about this. And I hope to have you back on the podcast again soon. Hey, thanks for having me. Happy to be on. Bye. Hi, Cachimbonas, and I wanted to say welcome to Julie, who is a classmate of mine from Stanford Law School and who's now working at Human Rights First. And um, I just wanted to say thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. Thank you, Yvette. I'm a huge fan, and it's an honor to be here. So you work in Human Rights First, and you're focusing on asylum reform advocacy. What was your day-to-day like when you were down at the port at San Isidro that borders Tijuana? And what part of the asylum system were you focusing on there? Yeah, that's right. So I spent the past two weeks in Tijuana speaking with asylum seekers and observing the San Isidro port of entry to learn about the situation of people seeking asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border. Within the past few years, we've seen a lot of really restrictive policies um, Mm -hmm. at the border of effectively ending the right to asylum. So I've been visiting different parts of the border throughout the past couple of years that I've been with Human Rights First, speaking with people impacted by those policies and seeing how they affect asylum seekers on the ground. That's really cool. And so when you said that part of your work is kind of like reporting anyway, are you talking about how that part of your work that is documenting these conditions to spread awareness about what the injustices that are happening at the border? Yeah, so I'm an attorney, but I work on the the uh, research team for uh, border advocacy. So what my main work involves doing interviews uh, with asylum seekers and service providers and others, collecting data and writing human rights reports, which are used for advocacy and to try to to try to spread public awareness about what's going on. One of the big projects that I've been leading has been tracking the number of kidnappings and other violent attacks against people stranded in Mexico due to U.S. policies under the Biden administration. Mm -hmm. So is that Remain in Mexico and Title 42? 
So Human Rights First has tracked kidnappings under both policies. As since I've been around, it's been mainly under Title 42. Okay. And so what are what were the things that you saw at the San Ysidro Port of Entry? And what is the pattern that you were just mentioning with kidnappings uh, for people who were subjected to Title 42? So the San Ysidro Port of Entry, I went down there this time too, because we expected an announcement on Title 42. Um, yeah. Uh, which was set to expire at the end of March. Um, Mm -hmm. And my visit just happened to coincide with the arrival of a large number of Ukrainian asylum seekers. And what I observed at the San Isidro Port of Entry is that after two years of not allowing anyone to seek Mm -hmm. asylum at that port of entry, turning away hundreds of thousands of people, the CBP was allowing Ukrainian asylum seekers to pass through and was processing their asylum claims and releasing them to friends and family inside the United States. And I just happened to arrive on my first day when uh, a group of 26 Ukrainianists, and that that was was about two weeks ago, Mm -hmm. and a group of 26 Ukrainian asylum seekers were waiting at the port of entry along with a Mexican family and CBP and they allowed the 26 Ukrainian asylum seekers to enter. They were working, um, they seemed to be working with a Mexican municipal police officer on the Mexico side who asked the Ukrainians where they were from. They showed their passports, he counted them, reported the number of the radio. And then he said that somebody would, would come out to help them. And then the very same officer went over to a Mexican family who had been waiting in the same, you know, alongside these uh, mm-hmm. Ukrainians and told the Mexican family who was also seeking asylum that they could not enter because of Title 42. There was no asylum at the port of entry. It was only for Ukrainians right now. And he didn't know when the policy would change. And he sent them away to a shelter in Tijuana. And I I, mean, I had a, the opportunity to speak with that family briefly. They're from a state in southern Mexico, and they're being pursued by an organized criminal group who murdered multiple family members of theirs, and they're absolutely terrified to be in Tijuana. Mm. So it, it was really disturbing to see the disparity in treatment. I mean, the uh, Ukrainian asylum seekers have been through absolute hell, right. um, totally unimaginable things. Um, right. And they've gone through a lot to to get here and they absolutely deserve to be processed in. And the United States is treating them the way they should be treated. It's just that obviously people from other countries, including this Mexican family I met, are also fleeing very serious and very immediate dangers too. And the U.S. should should be extending the same treatment to uh, to them. Yeah. They're like fleeing really intense danger and also this these programs like title 42 and remain in mexico also increase and perpetuate the danger and vulnerability that these migrants face right so you mentioned that there's a pattern of kidnapping of organized crime that targets migrants that are waiting in these mexican border towns can you speak to that yeah so organized criminal groups in mexico have really profited off of title 42 and other u.s policies limiting the right to asylum at the border which have left many trapped in these border cities. And organized criminal groups know that people who choose to come to the United States to seek asylum usually go there because they have friends and family who can take them in. So Mm -hmm. they Mm -hmm. will target these people for kidnappings and hold them for ransom, go through their phones, find the US number, and then call that person demanding extortion money in exchange for their release. And this is something I've heard from many people I, I interviewed. And it's just become so, so widespread. We've tracked now almost 10,000 kidnappings and other violent attacks wow. against uh, against people seeking asylum. And that's just since Biden has taken office and only right. at the border. So those are right. people who are either 
turned away under Title 42 or unable to seek asylum because they knew the border was closed because mm-hmm. of Title 42. I mean, thank you for shedding light on that because I think I don't really feel or hear the same fervor about immigrants' rights being violated that I heard when Trump was in office and the exact same things are happening under Biden. I mean, the CDC director recently uh, announced the end of Title 42, but up until now, he extended Title 42 and remained, you know, he tried to roll back remain in Mexico, but that's tied up in the courts. But the point being, the border, like the experience for asylum seekers is very much still terrible, horrific, and something that people should be paying more attention to. And, you know, I just really appreciate you shedding light on that because I think that people who don't live at the border think it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. And since it's not being discussed in the national news as much, I don't know. I think there's this perception that Biden like treats asylum seekers okay or something. And all these listeners of this podcast are like, not, you know, are informed about that. But I just appreciate you shedding more light on that. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And it, it always because because this is all I think about and read about and hear about every single day, I forget how much the rest of the world isn't aware of what's happening. Right. Um, and how yeah. these policies are impacting people. I'm always I'm always surprised when I talk to my family or even or even other friends who work in human rights. It's just not not super widely reported. Right. Like, I feel like I've been following Title 42 and, and remain in Mexico ever since they were ruled out. But I've noticed that there's less interest among other people. And yeah, if you're not, I don't know if this isn't something that is directly impacting you, then it's easy for people to look away. But, you know, it's just a bit hypocritical because there was so much fervor when it was Trump, you know, and just because it's a friendlier face, I don't think that we should be any less outraged. Yeah, I think you're right. And I was really surprised that Biden continued Title 42. It was Stephen Miller's brainchild in the Trump yeah. administration in the mm-hmm. beginning of March 2020. Um, it was obviously a white nationalist policy, right. uh, like the most restrictive asylum policy ever in the United States. Mm-hmm. And the Biden administration knew coming in, I mean, the transition team knew that this policy had to go, that it was... Um, yeah. It's like a total violation of international law and of mm-hmm. like U.S. refugee laws, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and they just kept on extending it. And it's been now more than a year, and that they've been in office, and we still have this policy. And there's people, you know, while the Ukrainians are being processed in, there's people who have been waiting at the port of entry for more than a year. Yeah, some people almost two years. Um, yeah, for years many have now. been there for many months. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's it's really just infuriating. And yeah, the CDC director said at the end that they're going to roll back the policy by the end of May. Yeah, but I'm which uh, it's a huge relief. It's a huge win for the adv- advocacy community to just have that commitment out of the administration, which is more than we've ever seen this far. But it remains to be seen. I mean, several states have already sued the Biden administration uh, about ending yeah. Title 42. Uh, we have Republicans right. in Congress now attaching to the next COVID relief plan prohibition on ending Title 42, which is ridiculous. Oh my God. So who knows what will actually happen? I think like the the fight is certainly not over. Yeah, no, definitely not. And I think the fact 
that Ukrainians are being processed in while others are still being denied because of Title 42 really does just speak to the xenophobic origins of this law. Like you said, Stephen Miller is somebody who is explicitly anti-immigrant and racist. And like before anybody had even heard of COVID, had this idea of using this really obscure, previously underutilized law um, as basically a way to shut down asylum. Like this was because ostensibly Title 42 was a COVID precaution, but it's just, you know, the inconsistency with which it's been applied. I mean, even just this one example alone of allowing Ukrainians in and re- rejecting a Mexican family that is similarly seeking refuge and asylum just shows how this isn't about stopping COVID spread because um, COVID doesn't care if you're Ukrainian or Mexican. And so any actual and serious dedicated effort to stop COVID wouldn't be discriminating on based on people's nationalities. Yeah. And the, the COVID justification has been disputed by public health experts from the outset and from experts within the CDC itself. And public health experts have consistently said that it not only does nothing to prevent the spread of COVID-19, but actually exacerbated the spread of COVID-19. There was many months actually that the Biden administration was flying families laterally across the country to expel them in different parts of the country, which is just so cruel to the families, but also totally undermined any purpose to stop the spread of COVID. Obviously, that's not something that (laughs) that would help keeping people in these congregate settings and then flying them around the country for no reason. Exactly. Well, the reason was to confuse people so that they wouldn't recross Successful. There was that, and there was also for for a while, and actually still, the state of Tamaulipas has not been allowing the United States to return families with children mm. under the age of seven. Right, right. So for a while, families under the age who crossed there under the age of seven were children under the age of seven were being yeah. um, were being processed in, and then when they started to arrive in larger numbers. The Biden administration started loading them onto planes and flying them different different parts of the border where the Mexican government would accept them back. One of those ports was San Isidro. So mm. there's an, I actually spoke to a number of families who are still there. From those lateral flights? Yeah, we crossed in the Rio Grande Valley and were put on one of these lateral flights as recently as January. It's possible they've been doing it since then, but that was the, the most recent person, uh, most recently returned family that I met. And they're still in a shelter waiting for the opportunity to request protection after having been flown across the country. Right. Yeah, these lateral flights are literally just like like horizontal flights from one part of the border to another, like you said, for U.S. strategic reasons that are very cruel, like disorienting people or just working with the limitations of what the Mexican government is willing to do. And it's just funny because Title 42 is implemented on the ground by Border Patrol, which is an agency that the New York Times has reported is very in large part responsible for the spread of COVID to Central American countries because of several flights had deportees who like DHS should have had reason to know had COVID and like just deported people to countries that didn't have as wide COVID spread as we did at the time. So even just like the agency's actions themselves are contradictory. Like Border Patrol doesn't give a fuck about preventing COVID. Like I remember there's also controversy at a checkpoint around here because for a certain time, Border Patrol agents wouldn't wear masks when they were um, interrogating people at the checkpoint. 
I wouldn't wear <laughs> yeah, PPE, like, you know? So <laughs> Yeah, they've been fighting vaccine mandates. They, right. Yeah. And now it seems like like most people in the discourse about Title 42 have dropped the pretext that it's about COVID. Republicans are saying, oh, there's going to mm-hmm. be a crisis at the border, even some mansion. Right. You know, we have like these moderate Democrats saying the same thing that it's purely now being seen as a border management policy. Nobody's yeah. even really pretending it's about COVID anymore. Yeah. Well, I, I was going to say, I was going to ask why you think that Biden didn't rescind the policy on day one. And because I think that this is the reason actually that they were afraid of being seen as being soft on immigration, that they were, they were scared of headlines that were talk about floods of immigrants coming into the country because of the backlog of asylum seekers that these policies created under Trump. And it has always been a border management policy from the Democrats' perspective. I mean, I don't think that anybody, as you said, I mean, from the very beginning, the CDC was like, this is not a public health measure. Biden knew that as well and wanted to ask your opinion on that. I don't know, but my speculation is exactly what you said, that they were worried about more people coming to the border if they were to be seen as having softer border policies. And, but the uh, thing is that these policies never stopped people from coming, though. Exactly. But, I mean, it, it, tons of people came anyway. They came under Trump. And people will continue to come because... The, That's because, the thing, yeah. Yeah, because of the forces that are driving people to, to leave their home are, are continuing and are getting are getting worse in, in, in many places. So, so people are going to keep coming. And when the administration does eventually lift Title 42, there's going to be a lot of people trying to seek asylum because there's already people yeah. who've been waiting in tent encampments and yeah. in shelters that are overflowing. So there's going to be an initial period where there's where they're going to have to process a lot of people very quickly, but right. um, should, should settle down. Out. And then we can get yeah, back exactly. to like the normal flow of asylum seekers that you know we can get past this bottleneck exactly the thing is cdp is one of the best funded agencies in the federal government there is absolutely no question that they can process a lot of asylum seekers this is ostensibly what they're fucking funded to do and they have a lot of money to do it but they act like they're this scrappy agency that has no money and you're right that moderate democrats are part of perpetuating this narrative like senators kelly and um cinema have both come out now that title 42 has ended being like whoa biden shouldn't do that without having a comprehensive border plan in place and the thing is we already have an infrastructure for accepting asylum seekers like what did people think that we were doing before this what did they think the border patrol was doing before this like this has this is what has always happened the administration can absolutely, they have the resources, the agencies have the resources to process people the way they need to be processed. And, and if you look at as an example, what happened in September when a large number of Haitian asylum seekers arrived in, um, in Del Rio, and the administration was able to pull together a response very quickly to <laughs> load them onto right. flights and expel them back to Haiti, which is absolutely insane because this because it's at a time when the president was just assassinated there's virtually no rule of law and it's just a total and the haitian government itself said like we're not equipped to receive all of these people but nonetheless that was a good example of how the administration can pull off a very like complicated and large-scale logistical task with um at the border with in in a very short period of time so if they're able to pull together resources to do to deport 
Uh, and now it's been 25,000 Haitian people without any sort of due process. Then they can pull together resources to process people in and just release them to friends and family who are ready to take them in. Exactly. That's the thing. I think that Biden could definitely fund like border orgs that are that already like take people in who cross the border and like help them get to their families safely, you know, as alternatives to having people languish in CBP detention. I think that there's room for that. But just this idea that like, oh, there's not enough agents to process people or like there's not enough ports of entry that are open or this rhetoric yeah. that implies that CBP needs more funding to get this done is just incorrect. And CBP already has enough funding. So if funding is going anywhere, it should go to like the border orgs like that sh- provide shelter yeah. for people and help them get to their friends and family in the U.S., Absolutely. And there's, and those organizations are, they've been preparing for an end to Title 42 building capacity. They're ready and waiting to receive people. And, and you're right, that's where funding should be, should be directed. So what are the next steps to ensuring a humane asylum system? I think, like you said, of directing funding to the organizations who are already doing the work and have been doing the work for many years to process people safely and to transport people safely to friends and family in the U.S. who are ready to receive them. And we know that the vast majority of people who are arriving in the U.S. to seek asylum do have friends and family in the U.S. who who will receive them. And And also just building capacity at ports of entry to process people. People don't need to be detained in yeah. in CBP holding right. cells. That is just something that doesn't need to happen. We're not we're not seeing that happen with the Ukrainians. They're coming in, um, mm. spending about two to three hours in CBP custody before they're released in San Diego. And I think that time could be even less for people to be processed in, in as they come through. And that's really it. We just need to process people quickly and build build capacity at the ports of entry and build capacity with the organizations at the border, receiving people in shelters and then helping them get to bus stations, airports before they uh, travel onward. Like that's that's what, what needs to happen. And we just need, the administration needs to end Title 42 completely for all people of all ethnicities and all races. Oh yeah, that's something we didn't talk about is, is but uh, important to mention, I think, is the fact that The, there's no official policy that that allows Ukrainians to enter and other people of other ethnicities not to. That's right. The um, right. yeah, within Title 42, the administration or the CBP has discretion to grant humanitarian exemptions, and CBP is just choosing to exercise that discretion to allow Ukrainians to enter. And mm. you know, some isolated cases that, that are the hard fought by lawyers to, to yeah. um, for people with um, people who are truly needs. the most vulnerable. Like it's like yeah, outrageous people, that like, they haven't been admitted. <laughs> children who are about to die, like, right. they don't get specialized medical care. Like that's pretty right. much um, the only people we've seen getting in. So the racism is just blatant now of the way these ex- exemptions are being applied. And So the administration needs to end the policy once and for all with with clear guidance that applies equally to you know everybody seeking protection at the border and and we didn't even get get into MPP that's a whole nother story we're afraid now because of comments that Secretary Mayorkas made on a press call as the administration winds down Title 42 it will wind up 
the Remain in Mexico program, which was re-implemented under court order this past December. And so far, the administration has been placing relatively few people in the program, but um, still too many. It's another thing that we've been monitoring that I've, I managed to, to watch some Remain in Mexico hearings and speak oh. to some folks in that program in Tijuana. But with, the, with with everything else that's been that's been going on, it's kind of gotten lost. But Remain in Mexico needs to go too. I think that's going to be a fight that we will continue fighting concurrently with, with trying to actually end Title 42. And, and should Title 42 finally end, we'll be back to fighting MPP, which is really depressing because yeah. <laughs> there's many years of doing that and finally getting the policy ended and then having to having to do it again is, is just, just depressing. Yeah. So can you say the difference or can you explain what Remain in Mexico is and what the, sure. dif- you know, how it's different from Title 42, but also how it does ultimately play the same, a similar role of dismantling asylum? So Remain in Mexico, another Stephen Miller special was uh, that. So that was devised under the Trump administration before the pandemic as a way to prevent people from Spanish-speaking countries in Central Central South America from seeking asylum at the border. It required that people who seek asylum at the border would be given a notice to appear, an mm-hmm. asylum case open for them um, after, they, after they asked for asylum in the United States, and then return to Mexico to await their hearings. So they would right. have to return to the border multiple times to go to court. Totally ridiculous and illegal policy. It, that was an absolute disaster. Human Rights First had been tracked. So that was in 2019 that the policy was enacted. Human Rights First tracked more than a thousand kidnappings of people in that program and, and other violent attacks against people in that program. Under the Trump administration, virtually, but very, very, very few people were actually granted asylum. And that was because mm-hmm. it was really, really difficult to access legal information and, to, and representation. So to, like a total due process disaster. Um, and that was only, again, only impacting people from Spanish-speaking countries and from Brazil. And that policy continued until that, March Oh, 20th. the reason for okay. that is because, like, the the justification that they used was that if you were a person who traveled through Mexico first and didn't ask for asylum in Mexico, then you would be put through this other process that was just, like, a complete, like you said, due process disaster. And... You mentioned that there was that it was really hard for people to obtain representation. I know that there was fights to get people even just that bare minimum of legal representation in these hearings because they they still occurred at the border and they were in these tents. Right. And most of them were virtual. Yeah. So that was another like dystopic element of (laughs) Remain in Mexico is these tent courts. The DHS attorney would show up by video <laughs> it was just, i i didn't have the i didn't have the opportunity to observe those but they're really problematic um and it's it, it was and the judge was often appearing like, virtually as well yeah so it's just yeah. you know nobody was looking at the person seeking asylum like actually in person yeah total kangaroo court so remain in mexico continued until march 2020 when the trump administration enacted title 42 through the cdc order and since nobody was being since everybody was summarily turned away immediately there was no need for remain in mexico in many ways is better than title 42 because then at least people get a court case open at least they get a day in court to, whereas title 42 they just it's as if they never it's as if they never appeared 
in the United States. And the States bar is in hell. So, yeah. So <laughs> MPP people, is like, better than Title 42 because people get to go to a tent court with virtual hearing. Yeah. New people weren't being enrolled in MPP when Title 42 uh, started, with some exceptions. Venezuelans and Cubans were being put in MPP uh, during under the Trump administration until until Biden came in and actually stopped new enrollments in the program before starting them again. So very, very, very limited number of people being put in in MPP under, I'm using MPP and remain in Mexico interchangeably uh, for, you know, people who may not know. Um, So very few people being um, put in MPP under the Trump administration. And then, and with the vast majority of folks showing up at the border being turned away under Title 42, when Biden took office, pretty immediately ended new enrollments and then created a process to enable those who had been put in and remained in Mexico previously to, to enter the United States. And that was until a federal court ordered uh, the administration to start the program up again. So then we saw new enrollments at some ports of entry starting this past December. Mm. So at the same time that the administration continues to turn away the vast majority of people under Title 42, some people are being enrolled in Remain in Mexico. And so far, the majority of people who have been put in Remain in Mexico have been Nicaraguans, followed by Venezuelans and Cubans are, are being put in, in Title 42. And these are countries which the United States does not have diplomatic relations, so they can, can't be expelled and expelled under Title 42. Although we did hear reports recently of the administration expelling Venezuelans who had previously lived in Colombia to Colombia. Oh, wow. um, which which is awful under Title 42. Yeah, I feel like that just reveals like the true, like the true geopolitical reasons behind so many asylum decisions. Like it's not like people fleeing violence in Mexico or Salvador are any less in danger or any less deserving of having a fair shot at asylum. But it's just that the United States hands are tied and it literally can't like the the it doesn't have relations with these countries that are willing to accept deportees. So they have to engage in the asylum process that it has committed to providing for everybody, but it's really just doing the bare minimum. And I appreciate you highlighting how Mallorca implied that the plan was to ramp up MPP when, if you know, when the rollback of title 42 happens, because, um, you know, there's a narrative about the courts forcing the Biden administration to re-implement MPP, and it seems like they're still committed to using it, at least partially as a border management strategy, despite it being a violation of human rights. And I think yeah. it's important to show how the administration actually is interested in keeping MPP in place as a tool for DHS. Yeah, and even before Mayorkas made that co- those comments, the Biden administration came out with its version of MPP 2.0. It was actually expanded to include Haitians. So previously, Haitians under the Trump uh, Remain in Mexico 1.0 were not, you know, could could not be put in this program. But now under um, the Biden version, Haitians are eligible. Uh, we, to my knowledge, Haitians haven't been put in the program yet, but they can be, which is further evidence that the administration is not acting under duress to implement this policy. They're going to implement an even more expansive version of it. Well, those were all the questions that I had. I don't know if I missed anything. No, yeah, it's, it's I, I mentioned the, what I saw the first day when I was in Tijuana, the 26 Ukrainians who, who had entered. 
over the course of those two weeks, the numbers of Ukrainians who arrived increased exponentially. It was about 100 a, a few days later, and then a few days after that, five or 600. And now I'm being told it's over 1,000 who are, who are down there. CBP has been processing them. At the time I was there about a week ago, or fewer, less than that, maybe maybe five days ago, it was, a, it was 180 people a day that they were processing Ukrainians through the San Isidro port of entry. The city of Tijuana had created, opened a shelter um, in an old gymnasium just for the Ukrainians. The mayor of Tijuana showed up to show the support. Like, they've been getting so very, very warm welcome. Um, and again, so like easy. they've, you know, they've been through absolute hell. They deserve to be treated this way. This is how we should treat refugees who arrive at our border. This is how, um, this is how countries should treat, <laughs> should treat people fleeing disaster and persecution. But at the same time, there are already shelters full of, of people who had been there. A few weeks ago, the same city of Tijuana was clearing, you know, forcefully evicting people who'd been waiting for, right. for months or a year from a the encampment outside the San Isidro port of entry. So it's the, the disparity in treatment is just really, really stark. Yeah. And, and I think ha having one set of policies for refugees from certain places is just like a totally unjustifiable border policy. Yeah. It, it's like defeats the whole purpose of the <laughs> system of asylum, which is supposed to be, you know, this agreement that to take in people who are unable to be protected by their country and yeah, to then discriminate against people based solely on their nationality just defeats the Yeah, purpose. and then if you contrast that with the way the Haitians were treated when they sought protection in, in, September, in large numbers in September, we heard about horrible abuses in CBP custody and, right. and, and in ICE detention and and they were shackled and and loaded onto planes, not told where they were going, and then dropped back in Port-au-Prince. It's it's just really depressing to see the difference in in the way people are being treated. Yeah, definitely. And I think I appreciate you highlighting, you know, like the Tijuana mayor's role, and because the Mexican government ha is has been the partner of the U.S. in shutting down asylum for. Uh, for many of the asylum seekers who go to the U.S. seeking asylum. So I think it's important to recognize the Mexican government's role and, um, yeah, and then just keep calling out this racist treatment. Yeah. Cool. Well, I like to end on a, I like to end on a lighter note. So I wanted to <laughs> ask you, what is something that is giving you life or nourishing you right now? It's been an honor and a privilege to work with such passionate advocates in the advocacy community, including asylum seekers themselves who've been through this yeah. process, who have been really pushing hard to hold the administration accountable and holding demonstrations and and being really persistent about making their voices heard and getting these policies ended. So I think just being able to work with that community and learn from them is is really giving. <laughs> Giving me, giving me hope that things will change. And again, we've had a very significant small victory with um, yeah, the administration. significant small yeah. victory. I love that. <laughs> That's how you I know, know I don't want to. Right? I don't want Significant small because, victory. Because <laughs> they didn't end. No, I appreciate that. You know. I appreciate that. Yeah. 
small but significant um, in, in the administration's commitment to end Title 42. So I hope they'll make good on, on that promise and looking forward to working with advocates to continue fighting for, for that. I love that. Okay, well, thank you so much, Julie, for coming onto the podcast. And I hope to have you back again soon. Thank you. It's been a privilege. Yeah, take care. Thanks, Julie. Bye.